Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Libertarian thought has been influential in the U.S., but it's also a global movement with global organizations. We'll look into their history and reach. Writer Dave Eggers' new book is The Monk of Mocha. It tells the real-life hair-raising tale of a Yemeni-American who revives Yemen's coffee industry. We'll hear from Eggers and coffee entrepreneur Mokhtar Al-Kanchali. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The book Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right's Stealth Plan for America, was a finalist for the National Book Award last year. It told the story of the influential but little-known Nobel Prize-winning economist James Buchanan. Buchanan had a big influence on American economic thought and the strategies of people like the Koch brothers. I talked with author Nancy McLean last fall about some of the key elements and controversies surrounding the book. McLean is a professor of history and public policy at Duke University, but we didn't get to discuss some of the global organizations people may not know about that push libertarian ideas abroad. Thanks for joining me again, Nancy McLean. I'm really pleased to be with you, Jerome. Uh, remind people a little bit about James Buchanan if they haven't heard about the mm-hmm. book or know who he is. And um, wh- wh- what kind of thing was he thinking about? So James Buchanan was a Nobel Prize winning economist, the only U.S. Southerner to win the Nobel Prize at the time that he did. And he came up with a school of thought, which was basically a kind of complement to the free market fundamentalism of Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek and others. And what Friedman did was kind of the dark side of their case. I think of them as the yin and yang. You know, Friedman made a very sunny case for markets and choice. And Buchanan made a very dark case against government, claiming that government could not do what people look to it to do because they misunderstood public actors. And we, sh- according to him, we should not see those engaged in public life as actually serving the public uh, interest or the common good, but instead serving their own individual self-interest. So it's a very toxic way of looking at public policy, and it's been hugely influential on the right. And it also, in explaining how government grew over the course of the 20th century in response, particularly to collective citizen power, whether it was labor unions or civil rights groups or retirees uh, or women, uh, in explaining how government grew um, and tax transfers happened, it also provided a strategy for how to reverse engineer the 20th century. And I learned in the course of my research that Charles Koch and his donor network have, in a sense, weaponized Buchanan's ideas in order to transform our society without being honest with the people about what they're doing or how they're doing it. So some obvious examples would be using the total myth of mass voter fraud to justify voter suppression, engaging in the most radical gerrymander we've ever seen in American history, undermining the power of labor unions without making a case for the public to the public about why they want to do that, and more. So it's really, it's really put a, 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 a quite stark uh, threat out there to the functioning of democracy, which we're seeing uh, so dramatically this year under the Trump administration. To go back to the uh, internet 
national roots of, mm-hmm. of this movement. Uh, in, shortly after World War II, there was a meeting of economists and like-minded people uh, organized by Friedrich Hayek, uh, the economist, and they went to Mount Pelerin in Switzerland. Uh, and this w- meeting um, became, and this organization became globally influential about um, talking about libertarian ideas. And at the time, they seemed to couch things in a different manner. They talked about things as uh, they wanted to counter, uh, you know, states that were uh, organized. Uh, Everything was centrally organized and they wanted to not have centrally organized states and have less uh, government in in the business model. Um, They kind of had a different post-Cold War pitch to it. Yes. So they started in 1947, in the summer of 1947, which was actually a few months after uh, President Truman announced the uh, Truman Doctrine, which basically took the Cold War global. So I think the timing is kind of interesting, too. Uh, But yes, they were very concerned to counter what they saw as the spread of collectivism, that is, you know, collective workers' power in particular, uh, but also government uh, action uh, in, in the marketplace. And they, of course, were organizing you know, in the shadow of the defeat of Nazism and the rise of uh, and spread of communism. But many people who have studied this thought over time uh, have come to the conclusion that they really were more concerned with social democracy on the European model and with the New Deal in the United States. And they really um, worked hard to develop a set of ideas against that. They were always underwritten by these right-wing business foundations. And in fact, one of them, the one that paid for all the Americans to go to the Montpellier, Society was a precursor to Charles Koch's favored uh, philanthropy, which is the Institute for Humane Studies. Um, and so this William Volcker Fund paid for Friedman's, um, you know, to go for Hayek's salary, Ludwig von Mises, and also paid for Buchanan to set up his institute or, or center rather at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in uh, 1956. And there's a big literature now about the Montpellerine Society, but what people aren't aware of is how connected it is to Charles Koch and his project to transform our society. Charles Koch joined the Mont Pelerin Society in 1970, has since used it to recruit for his operations, and it is today um, really stacked with operatives from groups that he funds that engage in climate science denial, among other uh, things that are really a, a pressing danger for the public. Now, if you, I went on YouTube and looked for Mount Pelerin Society, and I saw uh, Milton Friedman there talking about mm-hmm. the first meeting of the Mount Pelerin Society, um, and he was being interviewed uh, by the, the head of the Hoover Institution at, at Stanford, and um, he seemed to frame it as, you know, we won the war of ideas with this thing. We were we we were guys in a bunker with an unpopular idea, but we've come out and we are. Uh, taking an idea to people and they are accepting the idea that small government is good, that we don't want central planning, that we want to have freedom and liberty. And it's been influential uh, the world over. He was very proud of a school in Guatemala that was uh, founded. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was, um, he kind of pitches it as, uh, you know, this was a terrific thing. 
Yeah, and that's why I, I, I go back to that that kind of yin and yang notion because Friedman actually at the time of the Mont Pelerin Society's 50th anniversary in 1997, Friedman actually said, hey, look, we've won. People appreciate markets now. You know, we can, you know, pack up and go home. But for James Buchanan and Charles Koch, who had this much more anti-democratic animus, they were like, forget it. We're not done yet. We won't be done until we we reverse engineer the 20th century. And that sounds crazy to just say it like that. But when you realize how much money has gone into this and how strategic the thinking is, you realize what an audacious and ambitious plan it is and how far it's gone. So at this moment, when Friedman, who was more concerned with the battle of ideas, was ready to kind of pull back, Buchanan and Charles Koch were just getting started. And so uh, Koch actually said at this point when he funded a big center at George Mason University, uh, where Buchanan uh, presided, Koch said, I want to unleash the kind of force that propelled Columbus to his discoveries. He's also compared himself to Martin Luther. So this is a messianic vision uh, funded by unfathomable amounts of cash to most of us. And one of the groups that they're working with now, the uh, transnational groups, is called the Atlas Network. It was founded in 1981. Uh, it's now based in Arlington with the rest of the Koch Enterprise around George Mason University, a public university they've commandeered for this process. And it actually boasts, this Atlas ne- Network boasts 450 organizations in 90 countries. Uh, and it's had of late particular impl- uh, influence in Latin America. So there is just so much to watch about this Coke project. And we make a terrible mistake if we think it's only about the United States. These guys have world historical aspirations. And the Mount Pelerin Society, I mean, if you go to their website right now, it looks like a kind of moldy old website with Mm -hmm. old pictures of Friedrich Hayek and Ronald Reagan. And it doesn't look like a really, they meet once every other year or once a year. It sounds, it seems like a dormant institution. But if you go to the Atlas Network website, it seems very different. It is very alive and full of... uh, uh, much more vivid in prose and uh, meetings and activities. It's it's a different animal. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's these guys. I think of these guys sometimes as locusts. You know, they go and they take all the energy from a place, and then they move on to another. So what you've described with Mont Pelerin and Atlas is quite accurate. Um, they also at George Mason have launched a couple of initiatives. One was called Enterprise a- Africa um, to promote private enterprise approaches to dealing with poverty and other problems in Africa. The person who was running that is no longer there. I've learned because she's working under USAID in the Trump administration, as so many of these Koch people uh, with many years standing have gone on to the Trump uh, administration. George Mason's Mercatus Center also launched what they called the Global Prosperity Initiative in 2003, uh, getting graduate students to do field research on five continents. So again, this is a quite broad phenomenon, and it will have um, devastating impact, I believe, for the lives of millions of people around the globe. I mean, the most obvious is the funding of climate science denial and the efforts to prevent action on climate change. Uh, But there is also the push to undercut tax, wage, and benefit floors, including through tax havens that let 
you know, corporations and wealthy individuals offshore their money so they don't have to support the public, undermining labor unions and other forms of collective power, and ultimately also privatizing Social Security, Medicare, and other forms of retirement pensions elsewhere, and I should say, transforming higher education in a, in a way that would make it unrecognizable, where students in public universities would have to pay full-cost tuition in order to be kind of technically trained for businesses, you know, for their labor force demand, and the kind of liberal arts education would be only over in the the um, private universities in the dreams of these people. So it's it's a, it's a stunningly audacious and radical vision for transformation, and it is not popular. I think this is the, the huge thing for listeners to understand. Only three to four percent of people in polls agree with libertarian values and, and end goals. So that's why they have to rig the rules and engage in this radical rules change uh, through subterfuges like voter suppression and gerrymandering to misrepresent the will of the people uh, to transform the society. And I should say, too, they are also seeking radical legal change, um, which has been affected in many states, including my own state of North Carolina. Uh, but they're also aiming for a constitutional convention, a state convened constitutional convention in the U.S. And they have 28 of the 34 states authorizations needed to call the first state-called constitutional convention in our history. Again, that's how bold and dramatic and strategic this effort is. I'm talking with Nancy McLean, professor of history and public policy at Duke University, and we're talking about some of the ideas she talked about in Democracy and Chains, the deep history of the radical right stealth plan for America. Um, now, I, I, you mentioned the person who went from the Atlas Network to USAID, the mm-hmm. U.S. aid organization. What mm-hmm. does that mean in practical terms if someone who's a big-time libertarian goes into USAID? I kind of don't know how it translates. It doesn't. Um, I don't know what they do. Yeah, I don't know that either. Um, uh, I've just learned about this recently, but uh, this Ms. Boudreaux serves as Africa Land Tenure Specialist at USAID. Um, so I can't speak to her particular case because the knowledge is, is too new. Uh, well, they would to probably meet. want privatization Oh, of yes, land, absolutely. But, you know, absolutely, yes. Rights. And the end of government provision want... for all kinds of things that people depend on. They've also pushed for the end of um, uh, um, aid, for, you know, um, uh, aid to other countries. Um, that's long been a libertarian conviction that we shouldn't, the you know, U.S. and other countries shouldn't be providing aid to other countries. Um, and so much of what we're seeing actually in the Trump foreign policy is actually the foreign policy of the old right with which Coke is affiliated. But our journalists don't really know enough to make those connections and to see, you know, how uh, the agenda we're seeing now on the international front from the Trump administration is also connected to the Cokes. And I should just say, too, um, you know, again, I think many of our journalists uh, have assumed that the Coke story was kind of the story from 2009 to 20, you know, 15, and then after 2016, it became Donald Trump all the time, you know, and all you know, people writing about and obsessing over his tweets. But while that's happening, while he's distracting people with. Um, his behavior, this Coke agenda is moving through very quickly under his administration in one domain after another, um, whether it's anti-discrimination enforcement across federal agencies, whether it's environmental protection where the EPA is gutted. There's a great article about to come out in Newsweek about Scott Pruitt, who comes out of this network and heads the uh, EPA and that the radical changes that he has made. Um, uh, Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, of course, comes from this network. 
um, in based in Indiana. Um, his uh, the White House liaison to Congress, Mark Short, was the head of Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce, their main fundraising operation for five years. You know, I could go on, but by one journalist's calculation, seventy percent of Trump's senior appointees come from this Koch network. So far from being a different story, the Trump presidency is a continuation and an acceleration of the Koch story. And Charles Koch himself has said, we have gotten more done in the last year than we were able to do in a decade before, and more done in the last 10 years than in the 50 years he had been funding libertarian efforts. So he's quite pleased with the way his agenda is moving through the Trump administration. I wanted to talk about another one of the global uh, forums of libertarian thought. It's called the Antigua Forum. And it's headed by someone called uh, Wayne Lighton, and the um, he's the executive director and CEO. What are they doing? Yeah, that is a much more sort of secretive operation. It's a little hard to tell on the website quite what they are doing, but I'm so glad that you brought it up. Wayne Layton is another person who came through George Mason University through this training in Buchanan's ideas and the, the weaponized version of his ideas, which is about how to break down liberal power, how to engage in radical rules change in order to to uh, undercut the kinds of reforms that people want over the course of the 20th century. And he's now running, and he was a former also executive vice president of the Charles Koch Foundation. And now he's running this Antigua Forum that says it's designed to bring together, and I quote, highly leveraged, high profile political reformers from around the world. So again, this is an example of how this Koch agenda is not simply a domestic U.S. agenda, but is proceeding around the world. And one of the most dramatic uh, cases is, of course, as I said, climate change, you know, what they're doing to stop uh, action on climate change, uh, but they also want to undercut the way that international uh, that governments have come together internationally to lift wage standards, health, public health standards, and things like that. So uh, another thing that researchers are beginning to look into is the connection between um, the Koch folks and Brexit in Britain. And it's very interesting that Nigel Farage, the the big Brexit leader, uh, was brought to the U.S to the Heritage Foundation and to a conservative political action conference in, in my state of North Carolina as a featured speaker to talk about secession-like moves that uh, you know governments and countries could make in order to break up international cooperation on things like labor standards and climate change. Um, and Donald Trump actually pressured to make Nigel Farage the U.S. ambassador to the U- to the U.K. Uh, I mean the U.K. ambassador to the U.S. He was he was rebuffed on that by Prime Minister Theresa May. But I think you know again I think we can ex- expect more of these secession like moves from um, you know uh, using the threat of exit to undermine collective action. And, and, you know, longstanding uh, labor and environmental and other standards. This is just such a strategic operation. Um, and that's why I'm speaking so widely about the book and trying to, you know, be on the radio with folks like you to really alert people to this because it is moving along so quickly. They have said that they, they have gloated that they're close to success. And trust me, having written this book, if they get anywhere near success, it's going to be almost impossible for us to reverse what they've done. So to my mind, this is an all hands on 
deck moment for the defense of democracy. Uh, and people really need to inform themselves to connect and to, if they, if they, uh, don't like what they see in this Coke agenda to become active. Um, because the next, as I said, the next few years will be absolutely decisive, uh, for future generations and even for our planet. And one more thing about the Antigua Forum, which mm-hmm. uh, is, you know, it seems like a place where it's like a retreat that people go to and um, and they are, uh, you know, they bring together highly leveraged, high profile political reformers from around the world and train them to achieve radical change in their home countries. And uh, so they are, are one of them is the guy who runs it is Wayne Layton. And he mm-hmm. is now with the FCC, the Office of Strategic Planning and Policy Analysis. Oh, wow. I did not see that move. I have to say, it's hard to keep up. This network is so big. Sometimes I would just be kind of overwhelmed uh, during my research uh, process trying to, to keep track. But that is really telling and, again, shows how the Koch agenda and, and Koch people have, you know, are really all through the Trump administration moving this, this operation along. Now, another key piece of this that people should be aware of is the university piece. So you mentioned that they have this university in Guatemala called the Universidad Francisco Marroquin, um, which, again, was set up after the decimation of the left, right, by uh, the dictatorship, you know, the, the horrible civil wars there. But that university credentials uh, um, professors from around the world with university with uh, honorary degrees, you know, to make them look more lustrous than they are. And that's important because the Koch network in the U.S. alone now is investing in more than 400 campuses, um, putting in place these um, uh, funding individual faculty members, but wherever they can, putting in place centers, um, you know, free enterprise centers. They have various different names. But the idea is that the faculty there would um, find students, right, create a talent pipeline for Koch Enterprises, kind of hiving off the universities to to bring young people into this project. Um, Then they also supply the affiliates of what's called the state policy. Policy network that supports some, I think, like 150 to 200, I forget the exact number right now, but organizations in the states that move this, this kind of uh, arch right wing libertarian agenda. I'm talking with Nancy McLean, professor of history and public policy at Duke University. She's the author of Democracy and Chains The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. And uh, it's been great talking with you, Nancy McLean. Thank you so much, Jerome. Love your show. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the new Dave Eggers book, The Monk of Mocha. It's about reviving the coffee trade in Yemen. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Dave Egger's new book is The Monk of Mocha. It tells the tale of Mokhtar Al-Kanshali. He's a Yemeni-American who attempts to revive Yemen's coffee industry as the civil war kicks into high gear in Yemen. And today, his port of Mocha coffee is about the best-reviewed coffee in the world. And Mokhtar is here with me. Nice to meet you. So honored to be here with you guys today. And Dave Eggers is on the phone with us, and it's great to have you, Dave. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having us. You know, the funny thing about the, this is, um, for neither of you guys, you're not coffee guys originally. You, you neither, Dave, you didn't even drink coffee for a long time. Uh, uh, Mokhtar, you, you, were, uh, you didn't know anything about coffee in Yemen or anything and before you even got into this business. Uh, how did you, why did you, you did this almost as a point of pride, it seems like. It's <laughs> a it's an interesting way of of uh looking at it. You know, um yeah, f- about 5 years ago I didn't drink much coffee and it's it's weird for some people to hear me say that just because I I'm this coffee expert now. But um like most pre- people, the only coffee I was exposed to was this coffee that kind of tasted like like burnt popcorn. <laughs> We had to put lots of uh, sugar and cream just to make it drinkable. That's what we give our guests. <laughs> and um, and, um, and uh, I walked into, a, you know, growing up in the Bay, Bay Area and SF, it's hard not to be someone who cares about social justice and a foodie. And I walked into a coffee shop, especially a coffee shop. In my case, it was Blue Bottle. And I had a cup of coffee from Ethiopia that uh, changed my life. <laughs> That's terrific, um, Dave. You didn't. You know more about coffee now after looking into the book. Um, you did the history of coffee. There's so much coffee history with Yemen that's really interesting, and uh, the Dutch and everything. Um, you you went all the way in learning about this product too. Yeah, I I had my first cup of coffee when I was 35, uh, when my daughter was born and I wasn't sleeping and. Uh, like a lot of parents, um, I find a lot of people become uh, much more avid coffee drinkers after the birth of their children, um, especially the dad. Uh, and um, because uh, you can't always uh, uh, think uh, straight without some serious uh, caffeine in the morning. And I was drinking it just for that, just for fuel for many years and really doing all the loading it with sugar and other additives to try to make it. Uh, tolerable, but it wasn't until meeting Mokhtar and he educated me about uh, the delicacies of coffee, I guess, and then being able to taste the, the coffee at its purest without all the sugar, without everything else, properly roasted, properly brewed, and it was an entirely different beverage. It was uh, going from sludge to wine, basically. Um, I you it sounds like in the descriptions in the book you think about Yemen and reviving uh the coffee industry in Yemen as uh something to change people's perceptions about Yemen as a country um how did where, how, how did that take root in you i think with a lot of people who uh immigrated here you're kind of always stuck in these between these two worlds where your family comes from and where and growing up here and and I, I really think you, it's not mutually exclusive. You can be both. And um, unfortunately, you know, growing up in the U.S., the only thing most people hear about Yemen are things they hear in the headlines and news, and those are usually negative things. And so I thought that coffee could be this incredible way to bridge 
Yemen with the world and something, something much more positive than, than drone strikes and um, war. And the um, idea for coffee, you didn't know about Yemen's coffee history initially. And when you found out about it, it was a, you were happy about it. Well, when I found out about the history of coffee in Yemen and uh, just uh, the incredible uh, legacy, for, for those who are listening, there's a city, a port called Mocha in Yemen. And it was the first place that uh, introduced coffee to the world. And it's the reason why coffee now is the second most consumed drink after water. You know, I always tell people that, uh, that uh, oil powers factories and machines and coffee powers humans and dreams. <laughs> and when I started researching coffee and learning about these Sufi monks and, and how they looked at coffee and how coffee, how it spread, it's an incredible history. How it went from Yemen to, into Indonesia to the island of Java and around the world and how coffee houses literally changed the world. Um, I thought that was something that uh, it gave me a lot of pride and I wanted to share that with the world. And Dave, you, you talk about how the, um, co- the, the people in Yemen managed to keep the coffee industry to themselves for 150 years and went to great lengths to do so. And uh, people were trying to sneak coffee plants out of Yemen for, for a long time. Yeah, you know, the only coffee that could be exported was, had to be uh, roasted or otherwise not, you know, planting. You could not leave the port of Moa with a live seedling. And those that were caught uh, were put to death uh, because it was such uh, the cornerstone of the economy there at the time. And um, and it was, but eventually, um, a series of people, uh, including a, an Indian Sufi monk named Baba Budan, and then the uh, Dutch VOC company managed to leave with live seedlings. And they, uh, with those few live seedlings, they perforated the coffee cultivation around the world from uh, <clears throat> from Indonesia, like Java uh, that Mokhtar's mentioned, to uh, the Caribbean, first in Martinique and then Haiti. For a time, Haiti was the, uh, uh, one of the main producers of, of coffee uh, in the world. And uh, when the French, when the Haitians rose up against the French and declared their independence, uh, the exiting French burned uh, most of their coffee crops on the island of Haiti. But so the, the history of coffee is tied up with all kinds of intrigue, with a lot of theft and recultivation in new uh, uh, colonies, but also with a lot of uh, forced labor and uh, slavery and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and some horrific working conditions. And it's really only in this century, and especially in the last uh, 50 years or so, that Conditions for those who are farming and picking the, the coffee fruits are and, and processing them along every step of the supply chain. Uh, conditions are improving slowly but steadily. Now, Mukhtar, when you went back to Yemen and uh, tried to look for the coffee industry today in Yemen, uh, what exactly was there? What did you find? It was just a kind of a, a skeleton of its former self. You know, to give you context, in 1850, Yemen was shipping out 60,000 tons of coffee out of the port of Mocha. And now it's less than 15,000 tons. And so uh, there's a... Uh, and we're a, drinking a lot more coffee these absolutely. days. Absolutely. Um, and there's, there's a drug in Yemen called qat. And so uh, for every one coffee farm, there are seven of these drug farms. And uh, in the last 20 years, 
it's taken up a huge part of the land that was that used to be used for cultivating coffee. Um, so when I went back, it was sad to see. Like I would go to certain places, you know, where I had these old books that talked about coffee production in a certain city or village, and I would get there and I would ask and say, "Yeah, you know, our, there used to be coffee here, you know, fifty or eighty or hundred years ago. You're a little late. It's all trans, <laughs> you know, replaced with this with this drug." So, but the places that I did find were absolutely incredible. And what was more amazing were the people that that cultivated the land, some of the most hospitable and generous people you'd ever meet. Um, who welcomed to their homes, and you know, one of the stories I say is that they they sometimes would, would have one person from every household get into a line, and then they would do a a lottery system to see who gets to host me. So just an amazing place. People were vying to host you when you got out there to their coffee farms. We, well, in the beginning, as you, the book is really interesting. I didn't tell them I was a coffee. I had this idea of open a business. My initial guys was I was a student doing research, um, but but yeah. So I don't think a lot of people think of Yemen as a place that grows a lot of stuff, but it sounds like it has had uh, a great history in agriculture, um, grew a lot of things over time, and there's uh, more to Yemen than, I mean, people here think it's dry and has no water, and how can it possibly be this place that has agriculture? Um, if you just go on my website, portamoca.com, and look at these pictures, these amazing rooftop villages that kiss the skies, these really beautiful lush valleys and wonderful terraces. Uh, it's really incredible uh, place to be in. And um, it's unfortunate that people have this misconception um, of Yemen. And I thought coffee was an incredible way to do that. I always tell people the shortest distance between two people is a cup of coffee. And in this case, I think that you know, learning about a culture, a history of people through a beverage is an uh, was something I hope to uh, to achieve, and I hope I can still uh, achieve that. Now, in the book, you talk about running around uh, Yemen, looking at different farms and things, and taking all these pictures. And repeatedly, in uh, you go go up to um, people at checkpoints and things, and show them pictures of Yemen in other places, and they haven't been there, and they haven't seen the agricultural production, and they haven't, uh, they, they go, this is Yemen? This is, I'm looking at Yemen? Uh, they they kind of don't recognize their own country because people don't uh, travel around to different spots. Yeah, it's, it's there's a particular scene that, towards the third end of the book, and it's intense moments, but uh, I remember, you know, because I had traveled to over 32 different regions all across Yemen, trying to study and understand coffee and how it's cultivated. And Yemenis are, you know, they're pretty much in their own kind of, you know, neighborhoods. Uh, and so it was really interesting, that aspect of the book, just within Yemen themselves, understanding themselves. And there were definitely certain themes that were that were universal, hospitality and generosity and the way those customs were. Wherever I went, there was this, and, and the humor that Yemenis have, it's really amazing. But the landscapes can be totally different. You know, you go towards the eastern part of the country and it's, more flat. The northern areas are just rugged and um, have more um, vegetation. And so it was great being able to take that journey in Yemen. I'm talking with Mokhtar Al-Kanchali, and he is the featured person in the book, The Monk of Mocha, the new Dave Eggers book. And um, Dave, how did you meet Mokhtar? Uh, you're, you're both from the San Francisco area, I guess. Is, is this the uh, key feature? Yeah, I, we have a mutual friend in Wajahat Ali, who's a playwright and a commentator, and 
we had worked on a project uh, years ago, three of us, uh, maybe a couple years before Mokhtar had gone on his coffee journey. And um, at that time, Mokhtar was a doorman at the Infinity uh, Residential Tower, right? The official title is... They called us lobby. lobby ambassadors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it wasn't until Mutar uh, had returned um, and had narrowly uh, escaped with his life um, after being stuck in Yemen and abandoned by the, the U.S. Uh, State Department. And he had just returned to Oakland and we got together and um, sort of, you know, reunited and went over what had happened to him. And so um, I, we we got caught up really quickly. And it just so happened that we met outside of the Blue Bottle headquarters in, in Oakland. So it was very fortuitous and kind of a heady experience because there were, we were talking about Yemen and civil war and dodging bombs and militias. And uh, meanwhile, right behind it, there was a a cupping going on, which is sort of like a wine tasting for coffee, where people are slurp coffee with spoons and um, spinning into spittoons and holding uh, uh, clipboards and rating the coffee with an incredibly intricate, complicated system. So it was a very uh, intense uh, um, re- reuniting that we had that day, and it was that day that it really seemed like this was a we're talking about uh, Dave Egger's new book, The Monk of Mocha. We'll be back with Dave and Mokrar Altkanshali after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Mokhtar Alkanchali. He's the founder and CEO of Port of Mocha Coffee. His story is described in the new Dave Eggers book, The Monk of Mocha. And Dave's on the line with us, and Mokhtar's here in the studio. I wanted to ask you a question about, um, you, in the book, it describes your kind of hair-raising tale of uh, getting out of Yemen as the civil war is starting and you're trying to get to this coffee conference that is going to make or break your your career. Um, and you go through all these uh, checkpoints and uh, perpetually in, in Yemen as, uh, around this time. And um, it seems like your family network is something that comes in handy. At the Everybody is sizing you up and uh, who, who you are, where you're from. And... Uh, it's almost like a security blanket in a way. And, uh, you know, it's a different – I almost looked at it as a positive – I always think, well, tribal alliances are probably not a good thing for a country. It's probably a negative on the whole. But it sometimes looks really advantageous for you. And there are uh, – and it's really what was holding a lot of people in check at, at certain times. And uh, uh, can you describe what's going on there? You know, I remember when 
the Houthis had come down from the north and taken over the capital, and the uh, the Yemeni president was on house arrest. He resigned, and the prime minister resigned. So that night, you know, I was stressed. I was like, "What's going to happen in the morning? There's no government." And the next day, I remember I walked out, and everything was normal. And so I realized that there was never really a government in the first place. Uh, these ancient tribal networks are really incredible for for keeping stability. They're much more efficient than a lot of the uh, government, like you know, bureauc- long bureaucratic and corrupt, oftentimes systems. And it's what enables Yemen to even now with this kind of anarchy, where there's no real central government, or there's a few different ones, for it to be stable and to be somewhat safe. Uh, and so, um, I remember actually one of the things in the book when I Willem Boot, one of my mentors in coffee, when he gets to to Yemen, you know, he he has to go through an elaborate. You'll read it's pretty crazy how he gets there and gets picked up by a mercenary at the airport with with armed guards and has to go through a whole bunch of things and. Me, I just get off a plane and catch a cab, you know, and being able to do that, um, sort of put my Yemeni hat on, or in my case, turban, and, and, and be able to do that. And I think that was something that you're definitely right, was something very positive for me. Um, Dave, what did you get out of um, learn about Yemen in this regard? Because it, it looks a little different um, the way you describe it than people might imagine. Yeah, I think... Uh Yemen is one of the countries that thinks that the average person has uh, little to no real knowledge about. I think it's uh, we are aware of drone strikes. We think that it's a breeding ground for al-Qaeda and, and ISIS. Uh, we think of it as a very dangerous place. And then it doesn't, it doesn't help that, second to the U.S., uh, there are more guns per capita in Yemen than any other country. But... It's also one of the most hospitable and historically pleasant places for people to travel. Uh, people will you know, fall down uh, over themselves to host you and to make you feel welcome and to give you gifts. And, um, and it's also incredibly beautiful. Um, and so, like Mokhtar said, the, but it's been a country that's uh, undergone many different durations of civil war and evolution and, and for uh, governmental management, power vacuums, and and this yet another one now, and it just so happens that uh, you know the average citizens are suffering greatly now, and it's 15 million people food insecure right now, and it's an incredible human humanitarian crisis. But when we began the project, Mokhtar had just got back, and there was he was hopeful, and I think many people that care about Yemen were hopeful that it would not evolve to the state that it has right now. And it's really uh, the Saudis and the Iranians that have been, uh, you know, conduct this proxy war uh, influence in Yemen that has extended the misery and has prevented uh, a peaceful solution because every party thinks that they can come out victorious. And, um, but uh, uh, and, and the civil war continues to rage on. But I did want to, you know, highlight uh, all of the, the beauty and hospitality and rich history of Yemen, and maybe uh, with with some will from the international community, we could bring all the parties to the table, bring Yemen back to uh, its. Uh, a 
facility and, and, and people can come and visit again. Now, remarkably, you've been able to keep your coffee business going in all this uh, during the crisis. Can you describe what it's what it's like and how you're, you've got a network of farmers and you, you pay them more than they would than they used to be getting? And uh, it sounds like you've got a nice operation going. You know, it's I, I believe in life. The more difficulties you face, it's just got to figure out ways to be more creative. Uh, I, I believe in God, and you know, for me, if you just look at numbers and statistics, it'd be hard for me to imagine a scenario where I go from being stuck in Yemen to being here in your studio today in this wonderful program. Um, and w- with that, also being able to set up a, a company, and you know, I grew up in the inner cities in Brooklyn and the Tenderloin of SF. I didn't go to, uh, didn't get an MBA, and so I had to make a lot of mistakes and fail fast. Uh, and I've been fortunate to have an incredible team uh, in Yemen and here in California who really care about this project and see it as a, as a you know, a humanitarian mission, a social enterprise, and where you can, you know, have impact um, uh, and it can be driven that way. And so there are a lot of challenges that we face um, and, you know, processing coffee and getting it to the right standards and then getting it shipped out. And I think that one of the things this book talks a lot about is this journey of coffee. It's an incredible journey that crosses borders and cultures and political hardships to find its way to our cup every morning. And for anyone listening out there, as consumers, we have an incredible uh, opportunity to impact the lives of so many people just by paying a little more for a cup of coffee. And to understand that when we buy that cup, we have the ability to uplift someone you know, or exploit them. And so I hope that uh, people listening can take that into consideration. If anything in this book, you can understand that the relationship between producers and consumers. Um, And so I hope, I mean, I've been through a lot, and I hope that in the future, as Dave mentions, that there can be a peaceful solution. Um, And in the meantime, I'm just going to continue pursuing this. Um, Dave, I'm interested in your choice of nonfiction material. Um, you've written a book about uh, Lost Boys of Sudan. You wrote a book about a uh, Syrian-American man. I read uh, he was in Hurricane Katrina and tried to help people out. Now you have written about a Yemeni-American man. Um, what, what's going on here? Uh, boy, you know, I, I, I am interested in... Um what makes this country one of the one of the best parts of the United States uh, is its history as a country of welcome and refuge. And so, I become very uh, proud, I think, of our nation and its core ideals as a place where people can leave um, uh, insecurity at home or. Uh, uh, if they're persecuted for their faith or for their politics or uh, fleeing war abroad to come to the United States, um, it makes me very kind of patriotic and proud and uh, that part of our history. When we fall short of that, um, it provokes a Um, you have 
pursued it with incredible energy, innovation, fearlessness, um, bridged cultures between the U.S. that he grew up in and, and the Yemen of his ancestry, uh, elevated the product of, of, of Yemen and brought a beautiful uh, thing back to the United States that people really appreciated. And in the midst of all this, he was, uh, he and others, uh, thousands of other Yemeni-American citizens uh, were abandoned uh, by the U.S. government and left to fend for themselves. And so I love the American dream part of Mokhtar's story and the entrepreneurship uh, that he demonstrates and just the pluck and um, the sense of humor that he brings to it all, the passion. And yeah. I'm also uh, um, saddened when we don't do all we can to support our own people and when we sometimes turn our back on our own people as we did in Katrina and uh, as we've done with the Yemeni Americans uh, during the Civil War. So, um, but Mokhtar are both from, you know, San Francisco people now and so the whole story has a very strong Bay Area connection to it. the first time I've written about San Francisco for about 20 years, so. Dave Eggers is an author, and his most recent book is The Monk of Mocha, and he uh, is a San Francisco now, but he grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, Mokhtar Alkanshali is the founder and CEO of Port of Mocha Coffee, and his story is told in The Monk of Mocha. And he's going to be at two events. This afternoon, he is going to be at the Metropolis Cafe at 3 o'clock. He's going to be at Intelligentsia Coffee in Wicker Park at 6 o'clock. And um, are people going to get to taste your coffee there Mukhtar. absolutely and it is and it, we haven't mentioned it but it is rated as like the top coffee in the universe right <laughs> yes <laughs> um it's an incredible coffee and you'll fall in love with it in the first sip thanks a lot for joining us and great meeting you Mukhtar Alkanshali. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida and Amber Fisher and engineered by Mike Gilmore. This is WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.